You are now listening to the February 1st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have biblical stewardship, sermon, and refining faith. First, let's begin with biblical stewardship. Hello, everyone. This is Brian Winston from Biblical Stewardship. John the Baptist said, Heaven is near, so repent. Those who came to be baptized by him asked what they should do. John the Baptist said, Anyone who has extra clothes should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has extra food should do the same. Tax collectors shouldn't collect any more than required to. And soldiers shouldn't force people to give money or bring false charges against them and to be happy with their pay. This really happened to Zacchaeus, who was led to salvation. He said he would give half his wealth to the poor and pay back four times the amount he took from the people he cheated. Jesus said, Salvation has come to your house. We learned about this last time. Definite change will come to the lives of those who are saved. First, there will be a change in values, and then there will be a change in action based on those values. Are there definite changes in your values and actions? Or are you living an unfortunate life where there is no change after going before Jesus and listening to His Word. Today, we'll be looking into the story of one person who appears in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 23. After reading these verses, take a moment to examine yourself to see if you are like this person. Let's read Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 17, one verse at a time. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him. He fell on his knees before Jesus. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to receive eternal life? From his question, we know what he's interested in. He's interested in eternal life. He wants to know how to receive eternal life, and he wants to receive it. This is very important. He is a person who is interested in eternal life. He wants to receive eternal life and is asking Jesus the way he could receive it. Jesus says this to him. We'll read Mark chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God. You know what the commandments say. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not be a false witness. Do not cheat. Honor your father and mother. Jesus lists the commandments for this person to receive eternal life. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not be a false witness. Do not cheat. Honor your father and mother. As you listen to Jesus' commandments, what do you think of? Yes, it's the first part of the Ten Commandments. Isn't it interesting? Jesus only tells him six 
out of the Ten Commandments. As we know, the Ten Commandments can be divided in two parts. The first through the fourth commandments are commandments we keep towards God. The fifth through the tenth commandments are commandments we keep towards people. Jesus, who knows everything, answers the person who asks how he could receive eternal life by first telling him the six commandments that apply towards people. Why did he do that? It's because Jesus knew this person was already obeying these. As Jesus intended, the person answered this way. Let's read verse 20. Teacher, he said, I have obeyed all those commandments since I was a boy. As he said, he has been obeying God's commandments since he was very young. Jesus, who knows everything, leads the conversation this way. Let's read verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. You are missing one thing, he said. Go and sell everything you have. Give the money to those who are poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. What kind of feeling did Jesus have towards this person? It says he loved him. Since he loved him, he said this, You have done well to obey all the commandments since you were young. However, you are missing one thing. I am telling you this not because I hate you, but because I love you. Go and sell everything you have. Give the money to those who are poor. Then follow me. Why do you think Jesus told him to sell everything he had and give it to the poor? Why was that the one missing thing? Do you think that Jesus' word is for all of us? Must we all sell all of our possessions and give to the poor to receive eternal life? Is Jesus saying that this is the condition to receive eternal life? No, it's not. The reason Jesus tells him to sell all his possessions and give it to the poor is because he knows what the possessions mean to this person. Among the Ten Commandments, Jesus first tells him the Six Commandments towards people. However, Jesus didn't tell him the commandments towards God. Why did he do this? It's because this person put his possessions in God's place, even though he should love God with all his heart, mind, and strength, he loved his possessions instead. How can we know that? What is his reaction to Jesus' words? Let's read verse 22. The man's face fell. He went away sad because he was very rich. He had a lot of wealth and he loved his wealth, so he was in worry when Jesus told him to sell all his possessions and give it to the poor and follow him. He was saddened to hear Jesus' word of gaining eternal life by giving up all his possessions which he put in God's place. Look at his happiness. From his action, we could tell that his wealth was so valuable 
that it was difficult for him to exchange that for eternal life. What did he just lose? Yes, he lost the chance to gain eternal life. And why did he lose it? It's because he loved his wealth more. He thought the satisfaction that his wealth gave was more valuable than the eternal life that Jesus gives. After he left with worry and sadness, Jesus said this to the disciples. Let's read verse 23. Jesus looked around. He said to his disciples how hard it is for rich people to enter God's kingdom. A rich person has more wealth than one needs. Jesus said it is hard for rich people to enter God's kingdom. Why do you think that is? Do you think that simply having a lot of wealth makes one not enter the kingdom of God? Of course not. Then what is it? It means when one loves wealth more than God, one cannot enter God's kingdom. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters at the same time. You will hate one of them and love the other, or you will be faithful to the one and dislike the other. You can't serve God and money at the same time. Jesus said it clearly. We cannot serve two masters. People are very unfortunate. They know the way to go to heaven, and they know the way to gain eternal life, but they can't lose the things they love, so they can't go to heaven to gain eternal life. How about you? Is wealth a tool you need to serve the kingdom of God? Or is it a stumbling block that prevents you from entering the kingdom of God? I hope you will take a moment to ask yourself this question. This concludes today's session of Biblical Stewardship. Goodbye.
is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Adopted. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Today is Orphan Sunday, so a day we set aside as a church to consider how God has called us as his church to care for children in need. One of the many things that I pray for NBC is that we would have a culture of care for children in need. That adoption, foster care, care for women and families in crisis pregnancies, that kind of care would be commonplace among us. That all kinds of people of all ages would play all kinds of parts across our church in showing the love of our Father to the fatherless. Here in Metro DC and around the world. I've thought, how do we approach this time? And I could spend the bulk of our time sharing a bunch of statistics and stories about children in need and ways we can meet that need through adoption, foster care, support for families who are adopting or fostering, support for unwed mothers or pregnancy care centers or orphan initiatives around the world like we have in Ethiopia right now. But I don't think that's the key to producing a culture of care for children in need in our church. I think the key to producing this kind of culture among us is seeing how the gospel uniquely compels orphan care. How those who believe the gospel are uniquely compelled to care for children in need. Like we can't help it. It's a no-brainer for us. 
So we're gonna go to a passage that we've read recently in our Bible reading that talks about God's adoption of us. And then I'll share a quick glimpse of statistics at the end. But by then, I hope we'll have seen how God has uniquely called and designed us as the church to be the solution for orphans and children in need. That's a bold statement, but let me show you why I make it. Look with me at Ephesians chapter one, verse three. We're gonna read all the way down to verse 14. And I'll go ahead and tell you that in the Greek, in the original language of the New Testament, these verses are all one sentence. So it's broken up into different sentences in English. But as we read it, imagine this is the run-on sentence of all run-on sentences. It's like a snowball, like tumbling down a hill. And it starts small, but it just grows and grows and grows. And as we read, I want you to notice or make a note or maybe circle every time you see the phrase in Christ or in, and you'll see a pronoun for Christ like him or whom. So just try to count how many times you see that phrase in this one sentence. All right, here we go. Ephesians chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That is quite a sentence and quite a picture of what it means to be adopted by God. And if you notice, so in that one sentence over 12 verses, 10 different times you see the phrase in Christ or pronoun referring to Christ. So the picture here is clear. To be in Christ means that you have been adopted by God. And that phrase in Christ is so important. I think it's a better term than even Christian. Because Christian is used in so many different ways today. Like it can be a cultural reference, even a political identifier. All kinds of people, things, movements, ideologies are labeled Christian, many of which are totally contrary to Christ. The real question for any and every person in this room and other campuses right now, it's not whether you call yourself a Christian. The real question is, are you in Christ? Like in living relationship with Jesus. Like the Bible says in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ. So what I've done in your notes is I've listed 12 things that God says to every single person who is adopted in Christ. And there's more than 12 in this passage, but had to cut it off at some point. Otherwise, this would be a run-on sermon that never ends. So 
for all those who are in Christ right now, I just want to encourage you in the next few minutes, and we're going to fly through these, but I just want to bombard you with a massive snowball of what God says to you and about you in his word. So for all who are in Christ, and in this, I trust you will see how being in Christ compels us to care for children in need. And then, so for those of you who are not in Christ right now, like you're not at this moment a follower of Jesus, I'm really glad you're here. And I believe God has brought you here today to show you how he, God, desires to adopt you into his family, to make you his child. So sometimes the world talks about how like we're all God's children. And that's true in the sense that we were all created by God, but it's not true in the sense that every one of us has sinned against God and our sin has separated us from God. And not just now, because if we die in this state of separation from God, we will spend eternity experiencing the judgment due our sin away from God. But God has made a way for that to change, for us to be reconciled to a relationship with him and brought into his family forever. So today, the end of our time, I want to invite you, many of you in this room and other campuses, to place your faith in Christ. Like right now, all these things that we're about to see can be said of you by God starting today. And I'm going to invite many of you to do what many people have done every week over recent months across our church and campuses. I want to invite you to Put on this shirt and be baptized today as a celebration of the reality that you are a child of God in Christ. So here we go. Let the snowball start rolling. To all who are adopted in Christ, God says to you, one, I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing. I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, in a sense, all the verses that follow explain what those spiritual blessings are. But before we even go there, just pause and feel the wonder of this. This is talking about the one and only true God of the universe against whom you and I have rebelled. And we've all said, our way is better than your way. Our plans are better than your plans. We've all turned against God. But now in Christ, God, the God of the universe, blesses you with every spiritual blessing. That word means benefit. Every spiritual benefit you could possibly have is yours in Christ. God blesses you. Now, that, the way we use that term, like, God bless you, like, we... We say that when somebody sneezes. Like, that means so little to us, right? So I did a little research this week. On why do we say that? Like, God bless you when somebody sneezes. And there's all kinds of ideas out there. Just a little side note here. Some uh, have believed that our hearts stop when we sneeze. So that's why we say, God bless you. Like, thanks to God. I don't know that you made it through that one. Like, <laughs> it's quite a sneeze, bro. Glad you're still alive. Like, bless you. So, Others believe it goes all the way back to the 6th century when there was a plague spreading and the Pope decreed that anytime somebody sneezed, anybody close to them should say, God bless you, like, hope you don't have it, or stay away from me. I don't, I don't know where it came from, but I do know this. 
So let's kind of put that aside. Like the reality is for all who are in Christ, you live every single moment of every single day with access to every spiritual blessing and benefit from God at your disposal. You don't even have to sneeze to get it. It's number one. Number two, God says to all who are adopted in Christ, I have chosen you before the foundation of the world. Now, I'll just go ahead and say that we're diving into the theological deep end here, and we don't have a lot of time to swim around today, so this might bring up all kinds of questions in your mind about this or that, but I just want to encourage you today to believe and receive this reality at face value. For all who are in Christ, God says in his word, I chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Not just before you were born, before the world was created, God planned your adoption, which makes sense when you think about adoption. Adoption begins with a parent's initiative, not a child's idea. I think about Heather and I, when we first sat down years ago, basically put a map of the world on the table and prayed, God, where might you be leading us to adopt from? And he led us to the country of Kazakhstan. We barely knew Kazakhstan existed before that day. But after months of praying, we start the process of adopting a child from there. And here's the deal. We started that process before our first son, Caleb, from Kazakhstan was even born. And when he was born and being cared for in a baby house in Kazakhstan, that's what they call orphanages, he had a mom and a dad who, unbeknownst to him, were working to adopt him. And one day when we met him and held him in our arms, he had no idea all that had been done before he was even born, completely a part of him, any initiative in him to bring him into a family. Even now, this little guy in China has no idea that there are two parents and four kids who cannot wait to pour out our love on him as a family. And this is the picture the Bible's giving us here, and I just want to encourage you with it. All of you who are in Christ, like, feel this, especially if you're struggling in any way right now, I don't know, obviously, what's going on in everybody's life, but if you're facing challenges right now in your life, your family, your work, if you're in one of those seasons where some days you just don't know if you can go on, some days, quite honestly, you want to quit, amidst your hurting, amidst your pain, amidst loneliness, amidst suffering, whatever it is, just stop and realize this. Before the sun was ever formed, before mountains were ever laid upon the earth, before oceans were ever poured upon the land, before any of that ever happened, God Almighty on high set his sights on your soul. And you have nothing to fear about the future because God called your name before time even began just blows your way to try to think about that, doesn't it? You were adopted by God before a star was ever set in the sky. You are immeasurably valuable in the eyes of God. Which leads to number three. If you are adopted in Christ, God says, I have destined you for awesome. I'm combining here God's gracious choosing and then the word in verse five, predestined, and again, 
all kinds of theological discussions and debates we can have here, but I don't think this passage was written to cause division in the church. I think it was written to encourage us that before the foundation of the world, God destined all who are in Christ to be like him, holy, whole, and blameless in love. Think about it. One of the saddest feelings in the world is the feeling that your life is not going anywhere. That each day is just a meaningless venture devoid of destiny. You get up, you go to work, you do this or that, you go to bed, and you rinse and repeat. And you wonder if there's any purpose in it all. And God says, absolutely there is. In Christ, you are destined for beauty and glory in a way that surpasses anything and everything this world could offer you. You are destined to know God and to walk with God, be loved by God, and to work with God to make his love and his care and his compassion and his justice known in a world that needs all of the above. God says, I have destined you and where you're sitting right now for awesome, and I infuse meaning into every single day of your life with that destiny in mind. Keep going. Number four, God says, I have brought you into my family, predestined for adoption to himself, adoption by God, brought into the family of God to where you now call God Father, like the holy judge of the universe against whom we have all rebelled and we deserve eternal judgment before this God says, call me dad. So he says to you, I've used this quote before, I'll use it again. J.I. Packer said, what is a Christian? The richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. If you want to know how well people understand Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers, their whole outlook on life, it means they do not understand Christianity very well at all. And I just think so many professing Christians are missing this because it's so easy to miss it. Let me tell you John Wesley's story. Remember this? Follow this. Like John Wesley was an honor graduate of Oxford University, an ordained clergyman in the Church of England, strong in theology, active in practical good works, regularly visited the inmates of prisons and workhouses in London, helped distribute food and clothing to slum children and orphans, studied the Bible diligently, attended numerous Sunday services as well as various other services during the week, generously gave offerings to the church and alms to the poor, prayed, fasted, lived an exemplary moral life, even spent several years as a missionary to American Indians in what was then the British colony of Georgia. Yet upon returning to England, after all of that, he wrote in his journal, I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. He did all these things, but then he wrote, I had the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. And I'm guessing there are a lot of people, 
maybe even call themselves Christians who have the faith of a servant, who see God as someone you need to do this or that for, but you are totally missing the faith of a son or daughter, where you see God as your father who loves you and desires close relationship with you. God says, I've brought you into my family. Number five, I have redeemed you. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. That's a reference to how your adoption was made possible. So adoptions cost, and not just financially, but emotionally in so many different ways. Anybody who's been through adoption or foster care knows there's a cost that's real and totally worth it. And Ephesians 1 is saying that God's adoption of you was costly. Christ paid the ultimate price. He died on a cross, shed his blood to cover over your sins and mine. So don't, don't get a wrong picture here. Like We were not cute orphans waiting to be adopted. We were enemies of God rebelling against him. And the only way we could become a part of his family was through Jesus paying a price. And Ephesians 1 is saying the price was real and totally worth it. God says, I have redeemed you with blood. And because of this, God says, number six, I have forgiven you of all your trespasses. Verse seven says, if you are in Christ, God says, oh, hear, believe, rest in this. All of your sins have been forgiven. People say you have to be careful saying things like that because then people will just sin all they want and claim forgiveness, but not those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ know that sin against God their father is serious. I think about my dad who loved me so well. Some of my greatest regrets in life are moments when I disobeyed or outright disregarded my dad. And those who are in Christ do not love disobeying or disregarding God, their dad. Those who are in Christ trust God, their dad, and want to honor him because he has said, number seven, I have lavished all of my love upon you. That's what God says to those who are in Christ. It's the word in verse eight. God has lavished the riches of his grace and mercy and love upon you. Like God does not hold back from his children. I think about when my family and I, Lord willing, meet this little boy in a couple of months, like we are going to lavish him with love. Like we're going to have to have a pep talk with our kids. Like We've got to be careful not to overwhelm this little guy. But Ephesians 1 is saying that God lavishes you with his love. He overwhelms his children with his love. Keep going. Number eight, if you're in Christ, God says, I've made you an heir of all that I have. Verse 11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance that follows verse 10, which envisions a universe centered around and reunited in Christ. Well, we'll read about in Revelation in a couple of weeks when God will usher in a new heaven and a new earth with no more sin, sorrow, suffering, or death with eternity to enjoy his delights, and it will all belong to you in Christ. This is no poor man saying, you can have my inheritance. This is the God of the universe saying, you, right where you're sitting, can have my inheritance. Keep going. Number nine, I've sealed you with my spirit. Into verse 13. Those of you who have believed in Christ were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. A seal is a mark that says, you belong to me. 
When we adopt this child, we bring him home and somebody asks, whose child is that? And I say, mine. Meaning not just that he belongs to me, but I am proud of him and have taken responsibility for caring for him and loving him and providing for him and to think that this is what God says about you. When you wonder where you belong in the world, God shouts, mine. You're mine. God says, I am proud to call you mine. And I take responsibility for caring for you and loving you and providing for everything you need. I have sealed you with my spirit. Number 10, I have guaranteed your eternity. Verse 14, God's spirit is God's guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. I think about a young woman in our church family I heard about this week who's been fighting cancer and was just told she has six months to live. I'm reading this passage this week and I praise God that her future is not uncertain. No, she is in Christ and her future is certain. It is guaranteed. When you are in Christ, you have nothing to worry about the future, whether it's six months or 60 years, because your future for the next 10 trillion years is guaranteed. Don't miss this. Like if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, even the worst thing that can happen to you in this world, death opens the door to the best thing that will happen to you, eternal life with God, your Father. How is this possible? Number 11, God says to all who are in Christ, I have done all of this by my grace according to my will. Did you see that over and over again in this passage? All of this was according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, making known to the to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, according to the purpose of him whom works all things according to the counsel of his will. And it makes sense, doesn't it? You don't earn all these things before God. Think about it. If God did all of this before the foundation of the world, that means all of this is because of his grace. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite pastors in history, said, I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. (laughs) And he must have chosen me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. On another occasion he wrote, one weekend when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I kind of hope you're not there right now. So anyway, he said, the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord, I thought, but how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. And that is the story for every single person who is in Christ, right? 
I mean, who among us walks away from Ephesians 1 today saying, look at all I did to get adopted? No, we walk away saying, praise God for adopting me. And that's number 12. God says, I have done all of this for your joy and my praise and my glory. Did you see it? Three different times in this passage. Verse 6, all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, very end, to the praise of his glory. Now, you might say, wait a minute. I thought this was all, all about what God says to me, like about me. But in the end, it's actually about him? Yes, it is. And this is really good for you and me. Think about it. If God is the most beautiful, wonderful, glorious possible being, if there's no one, nothing better, greater than God, if God is infinitely loving and infinitely satisfying, all that is love and joy is found ultimately in God, If that is true, then what is the greatest possible gift he could give you and me? Himself, right? And not just himself, but praise of himself. Think about it. When you enjoy something, that enjoyment overflows in praise and it increases the enjoyment. When you enjoy something, you praise something, not because you have to, because you love to. Because you find joy in that. Let me give you an example here in Washington. For Nats fans, let me ask you. When Juan Soto steps up in the fifth inning of a do-or-die game in the World Series, down a run with one man on, and does his little deal shuffle in the batter's box, Then he swings and cranks a 413-foot blast over the wall in right field. Do you think, do I have to stand up and cheer? (laughs) No, you leap out of your chair. You high-five anybody, everybody around you. You're like, let's go. Like, you're going nuts. Why? Because you're loving what's happening. And your praise in that moment is not something you have to do. It's something you want to do. Praise in that moment is pure joy. It not only expresses joy, it is joy. So see it in a much, much greater way than a guy swinging a stick and hitting a ball. The God of the universe has adopted you, has blessed you. He has chosen you. He has destined you for awesome. He has brought you into his family. He has redeemed you, forgiven you, lavished his love on you. Keep going. He's made you an heir. He has sealed you with his spirit. He has guaranteed your eternity all by his grace. You're like, I'm loving this. I'm loving this. And the praise of God is pure joy. It's joy. 
joy. Like, let's be finished and done with like routine Sundays, kind of gather, sing some songs, move on. Like, no, we are children of God, adopted by God. We love praising him. That's what our lives are. Children adopted by God love praising their dad. So, what, what then does all of that mean for our lives? Well, first, to all who are not in Christ, I want to invite you to place your faith in Christ today. Like, some people might hear all this and think, well, if it's all by grace, then I don't do anything. No, you do something here. Verse 13, to all who believe in him, in Jesus. So today, I want to invite people in this room and other campuses today to believe that Jesus died on a cross for your sins to make it possible for you to be a part of God's family. You don't have to earn your way in, go out and do this or that. You just have to believe, trust in Jesus as your life to say, I want to be in Christ. Some of you have even called yourself Christians. But the truth is, the joy we were just talking about is totally foreign to you. You're not in Christ. But today that can change. Today you say, I, I want to be in Christ. I want to know God is my Father. I invite you to place your faith in Christ today. And then I invite you to proclaim your faith in Christ through baptism. This is the first step followers of Christ take to say, I am in Christ. And that's why I've got the shirt on. That's why we have, we have shirts, towels, shorts for anybody at any campus to do that today. And some of you would say, you you're, you've been in Christ, but you've not been baptized. What are you waiting for? Like today is the day to celebrate. I'm a child of God. It's just a joyful celebration. What are you waiting for? And then to all who are in Christ, now I hope it makes sense. Let's reflect his love for children in need. Like if anyone in the world should care for children in need through adoption or foster care or other avenues. It should be those who have been adopted by God. Now you see it? Now it's a no-brainer. When you look around the world and you see millions of children in need and thousands right around us, of course, those who are adopted by God want to care for children in need of a family. And so many people adopted by God, even just right here, like McLean Bible Church, there is no reason why with the thousands of people we have, hundreds of these kids should not be cared for in Virginia, Maryland, the district, and far beyond. Amen. So let's do this. It's a no-brainer. Let's care for children in need. And there are some exciting things happening at different campuses that you'll hear about. One just general starting point is mclanebible.org slash orphans or you can find out more or just even ask questions you might have. I just want to make sure to get that out there. 
but let's be a church where adoption and foster care and support for unwed mothers and orphan initiatives is commonplace among us. And as we do this, let's do it for the glory of our Father. Let's dedicate our lives to the praise of His glory. That the world might know He is Father to the fatherless. Will you bow your heads with me? As you bow your heads, close your eyes, I just want to give you a moment before we do anything else here at other campuses to reflect before God right where you're sitting. I want to ask every single person in the sound of my voice, are you in Christ? That's the most important question. Have you been adopted into God's family through faith in Christ? Do you know God as Father through Jesus? And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes, then I want to invite you to enter into his family today, like right now. God, before the foundation of the world, purposed to bring some of you to this moment. And I want to give you an opportunity right where you're sitting to become a part of his family through faith in Jesus. Just to say in your heart to God right now, dear God, I know that I have sinned against you. Just pray this before God. God, I know that I am separated from you and I deserve judgment before you. But I believe today that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And today I am putting my faith in him. Today I want to become a part of your family. Today I trust you with my life as my father. That is a prayer God promises to answer. So with our heads still bowed, I just want to invite you all across this room and other campuses, if you just prayed that to God, could I ask you just to, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, just to lift your hand up before God. It's a picture of you saying, yes, today I'm entering into your family. Praise God. All across this room, other places. Amen. God, you see these hands, you see their hearts, you know. You, you knew them before the foundation of the world. You knew this moment before the foundation of the world. <laughs> Arranged their lives even to be here at this moment, to hear good news of your love, to become a part of your family through faith in Christ. So we, we praise you. We praise you for adoption that's happening right now, supernatural adoption that is happening today. All glory be to your name. We pray that you would give these new sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, courage today to confess that publicly, to be baptized for others who have not been baptized, to do that today, to confess today faith in Jesus publicly through baptism. And God, we pray for our church family as children adopted by you in this church in this region of our world that you would help us to be a reflection of you to children around us in need 
God, we pray that you would cause a movement of adoption and foster care to rise at MBC that has a profound impact on our counties and our states in other countries. For your glory as father to the fatherless and for the good of many kids who are made in your image and loved by you. Help us to be the church you have called and created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. When I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life I won't turn back, I know you are near And I will fear no
This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their life. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and the email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Refining Faith. Hello, listeners. This is Sharon Lee with the Refining Faith. Have you ever tried to cover up your wrongdoings? Have you ever lied or tried to hide something because you did not want anyone to find out about it? Or have you ever had your wrongdoings revealed and were chastised for it? If you have, how did you feel at the time? How did you react? Sometimes we hear about our wrongdoings through God's voice in the Bible, people we know, or circumstances and situations. When we hear a voice like that and turn from the wrong path, we call that repentance. Repentance. Do you repent rather well when you are criticized for your sins? Or do you become angry when someone points out your wrongdoings? As I have said on occasion, God has taken us as His children, and He disciplines us to grow up as His children. And one of the ways He disciplines us is by making us to turn away from the wrong path and repent. I'm sure almost all of you heard of the gospel song, Create in Me a Clean Heart. This gospel song is based on Psalm 51 verses 10 to 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. This is a psalm that presents someone's most heartfelt confession to the Lord. Today, we are going to take a look at the person who made this confession. As you may already know, this is the confession of King David in Psalm 51. David was anointed the king whom the Lord had appointed through Samuel. He was a someone after the Lord's heart. But he committed adultery with Bathsheba and she got pregnant. To conceal this, he forced Bathsheba's husband Uriah to die in a fierce battle. And then he went back to his normal days of life, thinking everything was taken care of. But God sent prophet Nathan to David, who had not realized his sins. The conversation between Nathan and David is well documented in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Here is the summary of their conversation. Nathan started the conversation by presenting a parable of a poor man who only had one little ewe lamb, who he and his children loved and cared for. 
and a rich man who had a great many flocks and herds. One day, a traveler visited the rich man, but he did not want to prepare a meal for the traveler from his own flock and herds. So, took the little ewe lamb from the poor man and served it to the traveler. David became very angry when he heard the story and said this in verse 5. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who had done this deserves to die. The king said he would find the man himself and punish him by death. Then in verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Nathan continued and told David about God's rebuke and that he committed all these sins secretly. It means he committed sins without others noticing. David committed an adultery with Bathsheba secretly and killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband and his loyal servant secretly. Even though he sinned secretly because God is the God who sees everything, he knew all of the David's sins he committed secretly. And his sins were revealed through Nathan. The king of Israel covered up his sins, but they were revealed. How do you think David reacted when his sins were revealed? How do you think you would have reacted if you were a king? Even if you were not a king, how would you react if someone pointed out your sins? Right now, they were committed secretly. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, it is written, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David did not give excuses when he was rebuked for his sins. He did not give excuses by saying, He happened to look outside that day and saw Bathsheba taking a bath and things just happened. He did not give an excuse by saying that he had to send Uriah to the front line of the battlefield because he did not want to drink even though David tried hard to persuade him to drink. He did not give an excuse by saying Uriah would not have died if he drank the wine that David gave him and went to bed with his wife. King David knelt immediately and admitted his sins when Nathan pointed them out. And through Psalm 51, he admitted his sins, asked for forgiveness, and prayed in repentance. He went through the tempering by admitting and repenting his shameful sins through Nathan's rebuke. It is said in Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. Those of us who can accept criticism are humble people. Proud people cannot accept criticism. God points out our sins, but it is not a condemnation. He's making us pure in heart by lowering and humbling us, wishing that we all become humble through the Lord's tempering. See you next week.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. 
Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.